All right, if you've got a Bible near you, open it up to Acts chapter 11. If you didn't get a note sheet on the way in, feel free to grab one at the back tables there. We're in this series on the life of the Apostle Paul. And we said to understand Paul, you have to understand Saul of Tarsus. So we're starting the journey in what we're calling Saul 1.0 in Damascus Road, Acts 9, a couple of weeks ago, when Saul 1.0 became Saul 2.0 when he was struck blind in order to see. And then we spent last week looking at what happened in Saul's life after the Damascus Road. And we talked last week that he journeyed down into the desert of Arabia for three years he spent in the desert of Arabia. And so if you haven't pulled out your note, here's kind of, we, did, we talked about the stages of faith diagram. Here's the diagram that's there. We just talked about the different stages that not only Saul's life, but I think are representative in all of our journeys, that Saul's conversion at stage one was Acts 9, Damascus Road, and then he quickly went into kind of a discipleship and learning phase, which thrust him into, a, started into an active serving phase, which actually landed him in the wilderness. Saul went to that stage in the wilderness fairly quickly. He spent three years in the desert of Arabia, and we talked about the wilderness seasons and what God does, and the Greek word is aremos right, in those solitary places where, we're, where it's thirsty, where the ground is thorny, where it's just, it's dry, it's desolate, it's alone, and, and in that space, God takes Saul 2.0. And then following his three years in the desert, he travels back up north to Tarsus, his hometown. In Tarsus, he spends seven years. Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey. And so this is where Saul is. So track with me now. So Saul's in his early 30s when he comes to Jesus. So from his early 30s to his early 40s is what scholars call Saul's silent years, a decade worth of what I want you to think about is, I think it's a decade from primarily stage three to stage four. It's this wilderness journey inward phase that God pressed for 10 years in Saul's life. So before we ever understand the Apostle Paul, we've got to really understand this decade in Saul of Tarsus's life. Because that's all condensed in your Bibles from Acts 9 to Acts 11. So we're going to pick up the narrative today in Acts 11. But 10 years has passed. Three years has been spent in a desert. And then seven years was spent in his hometown of Tarsus. And you say, well, what was he doing in Tarsus? We literally know nothing about what happened in his seven years in Tarsus. And I suspect it's because God wanted the intent to be, the things that I was doing in the desert of Arabia, I simply continued for seven years in the silence of Tarsus. I think he was doing what most young men or guy in his 30s at that time went back to his hometown, and they said his family was a tent-making family, which just means they had side businesses going on, and he worked. And no doubt he put into practice what God had been doing in the Aramah season. Because we talked about wilderness as the place where the people met with God. And Paul, Saul being so steeped in the Old Testament, so devoted in his Jewish faith, he would know Moses had a significant encounter at Sinai with God. So that's why he went to the desert of Arabia. That's where Sinai is. That's where you go to meet with God. And so he met with God for three years in the solitude, in the Aramos, in the isolation, in the desolate place. And then I think for seven years, he simply internalized and deepened all of those things that God was speaking. No doubt he was spending time wrestling through the scriptures that he knew so, so well, and he's like, had to connect the dots to something he didn't see coming, and that's Jesus is the Messiah. 
That was a pretty radical shift for a guy in his early 30s. And he had to come to grips with what does it mean to believe in this Jesus and to celebrate his role as the Messiah. It was a radical shift. And he had to learn how to begin to walk with this Jesus and learn to do everyday life with him. So his prayer life, no doubt fasting, time in the scriptures, and just a lot of time, I'm sure, just talking with God about the things he had to unlearn and release what used to be so he can embrace now 2.0 what will be. And that's where we find this space, and I think it's an important space. I think that diagram of the stages of faith, I think, isn't just for Saul's journey. I think it's some good insight for all of us. It might not be three years in a desert of Arabia. It might not be 10 years in the silent years, but there's no doubt going to be stages and phases for all of our lives. And if you haven't already learned it yet, you understand that God often will take us through wildernesses. There's multiple stints in the wilderness that he will take us to in his journey of deepening what he's doing in our hearts because the journey inward eventually gives way to the journey outward. And most of the commentary on Paul's life is about his journey outward. And I'm taking these weeks in the series now because I don't want us to um, overlook the journey inward and the wilderness that built everything. It built like the scaffolding of Saul's interior world to uphold the weight of everything that was going to happen that we'll be reading and studying over the next several months. It reminded me of the importance of this stewarding of these younger decades in your life. And I remember I was in my mid-20s when I met this gentleman here. Many of you know Sundar Krishnan. I was in my mid-20s, and Sundar and Shamila Krishnan, he pastored in Toronto, Canada for 33 years, Rexdale Alliance Church. Through a sequence of events, I got connected to Sundar and his wife Shamila and Kendra. They've, they've been mentors of ours in marriage stuff, parenting stuff, family stuff, ministry stuff for 30 years now. Just an amazing influence and role in our lives. And I remember Sundar, when I first met him, I was in my mid-20s. I'd left Eli Lilly, and Sundar, I was getting to know Sundar a little bit, and he simply invited me. He said, hey, why don't you just come up to Toronto and just hang out with me whenever you want, whenever you can? And his, here's what his commitment to me was. He said, I won't change anything about what I normally do when you come visit. We have a spare bedroom. You can stay in the spare bedroom. I'll do everything I normally do just like I do it. And you can follow me around as much or as little as you want. So that's what I would do. I was in my mid-20s or so, and I'm like, I did. I mean, seminary can teach you a lot of wonderful things, and seminary provided really good foundation, a lot of fronts, but I was quickly learning there were a lot of segments that seminary wasn't going to teach me, and I needed to get around someone who'd been around pastoral ministry for a long time and just wanted to understand how to do some things. And so I just felt really inadequate. So I would just go up to Sunder's place. I'd drive up to Toronto. And I'd hang out, and I'd just follow Sundar around. We'd eat breakfast together. We'd go to prayer meeting together. We'd go to elders meeting together. We'd go to staff meeting together. we just, just a day in the life of a pastor. And I would just hang out with him and go to family gatherings with him, and then we'd just periodically debrief through these days. And I remember one distinct conversation. We were sitting at a restaurant, and uh, he said, Well, Eric, you know, you and Kendra in your mid-20s now, and I want you to think about how mid-20s is this stage in your life to focus on depth. I want you to imagine with me what it would be like for the two of you to simply give yourselves to 
depth in your marriage, depth in your understanding of God's word, depth in your prayer life, just depth in all the ways of what it means to listen to God and walk with him. Just give yourself in the early stages of your life to depth and then let God take care of the breadth. He called it the depth versus breadth principle. And he said, you know, if you'll just pay attention to drilling the wells in your own heart and in your marriage and family, you just drill those wells deeply. You've got to drill them deep enough to withstand whatever broadening of your life and ministry will come so that you'll be in it for the long haul. Because I'd already confessed this. I struggle with drivenness. You guys all know all about that. I struggle with drivenness. I was sleeping in my cubit lily for like within three, four months of being on the job. I was like once a quarter sleeping in the cubicle. I just had struggle with drivenness and people pleasing. And he knew those things. And he said, Eric, the only way you're going to be in this thing called the ministry for not just days, not just years, but decades is, is this. Depth versus breadth. And wow, what a gift that conversation was as I look back on it. And so that's what manifested for Kendra and I into like learning how to practice Sabbath together. That's where it came from. The practice of praying through the Psalms, the practice of being immersed in the Bible, like one-year Bible reading, it all flowed out of that. That's where the seminary and ordination work that continued and finished, that's where all of that came in. It became about what does it mean to steward the 20s and 30s in such a way instead of like my drivenness would be, I'm going to live my 20s like I'll never turn 30. Anybody been there? I'm going to live my 30s like I'm never going to make it to 40. That's my default mode. There's another way to live. It's called the way of Jesus, and he's inviting us into this. And in the stages of faith, I look back on, and I think the Lord was doing something in that from stage three into stage four during those early formative years for Kendra and I in our marriage and in our walk with him and in our soul. And I suspect that we're not alone in this, that this is part of how this journey with Jesus goes. There's this journey inward that flows with the journey outward, but there's this place of the eremos, and it tends to be longer than we want. It tends to be thrust upon us. They tend to be chosen for us that we don't get to choose that way. And that's where we find the space with Saul 2.0. I'm sure when Jesus struck him blind in Acts 9, called Ananias to pray over him, he got his eyesight back. Remember, Jesus stood in the way to show him the way, and then commissioned him and said, you're going to be what? A light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. You're going to go and make a difference to people who haven't been exposed to this gospel of Jesus. That's your mission. I'm sure inside of Saul, it's like, okay, let's go. Let's go, especially if he's in his early 30s, and especially if he had the kind of resume that he had, he's ready to go. And then it's a decade, a parenthesis there, a comma, if you will. Nope, you're going to go to an eremos, depth versus breadth. You're going to spend a decade plus deepening the wells to sustain where the Lord has taken you in this journey. And there's no way Saul could quite understand and peace at all. God knew where this storyline was going. And so the journey outward for Saul flowed out of this decade plus wilderness and journey inward for him. So his focus on depth, let God take care of the breadth, I think is a principle I've tried to internalize and I think is what's going on here with Saul. So we pick it up now, Acts 11, verse 19. Again, he's in his early 40s now, and here's what's going on. Now, those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Now, what's ironic about that? Who was there at Stephen's martyrdom giving approval? Saul 1.0. 
I just started to imagine, can you picture the conversations that Saul had to have with Stephen's family? Can you picture that? I can just imagine when he knocked on Mr. and Mrs. Stephen's door and sat down at a table and no doubt wept, no doubt confessed. Can you imagine that? Because in his 1.0-ness, he was absolutely convinced he was right. Stephen needed to be eliminated until Jesus came, stood in the way to show him the way. His eyes were open to see that Stephen was actually the one in the right. Saul was the one in the dark. And so he was the first martyr in the church, Stephen. Saul's there giving approval. And now a decade later, here's what's happening as a result of that martyrdom, because Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. So they were scattered because of the persecution. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, underline that in your Bible, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So Stephen's execution, follow this now, it pushed these Jesus followers out of Jerusalem. Up until now, the Christians were primarily Jerusalem-centered and Jewish-based. Because that's all they knew. It was primarily Jews that had come. Jesus was a Jew. The early followers were all Jews. It was just a Jewish kind of base, Jerusalem-centered deal. They were huddled up there. And what was the springboard to get them out of Jerusalem to move north and west outward? It was Stephen's execution. Can you fathom this? It's amazing. Like the tragedy that this family had to endure and then to see it for redemptive purposes, like what the early religious leaders and what the Roman officials are trying to do was stamp out the Jesus movement. And when they stamped on it with Stephen, it spread. Isn't that just like God? Like they stamp it to shut it down and it actually propels it and scatters it. That's why I have the map before you. Do you see your map there? The map is showing you the scattering that starts occurring in Acts 11. Check that out. So they're there primarily huddled up in Jerusalem. And then Stephen's executed, and here's what happens. The listing of the geographic areas. This is the scattering. This is the movement out. This is the first time you see followers of Jesus kind of leaving what they, because what they thought was, hey, what happened to Stephen's going to happen to them. We better go. You see, that's in their mindset, which... It's not a bad conclusion. If they did that to Stephen, they're probably going to do that to us. we got to get out of here. And so they're scattering. They're running. They're spreading out. And I was thinking about what kind of consolation. I don't know what measure of consolation this had to be for Stephen's family. But I could only imagine, right, the, I mean, to lose an adult child as a parent. There are some of you in this room who know exactly the depth and breadth of that kind of pain. That's what Stephen's family knows. I remember sitting with a gentleman who lost his 19-year-old son a few years ago and just listening to him weep and hearing him cry out in prayer and just being there beside him and recognizing that's just, that's a community of people who, unless you've walked that road, don't understand the depth of grief and pain and scars on the heart of losing a child And that's Stephen and his family. That's where they're at. And then they start seeing that in the loss of their son, there's this redemptive like movement of God's activity out. 
And for me, this is yet another place when I read the storyline of the Bible where it's this principle that you've heard me reference many times around here. And some of you, I've sat at your kitchen tables and shared this very line. That for me, I think mystery isn't the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. And for me, this is another one of those grand mysteries in the storyline of the Bible. I, only God can take the execution of an amazing man like Stephen and use it to propel his mission forward in a way that no one could have imagined. There's just more going on here, Mr. and Mrs. Stephen, than we are actually able to see. And I don't know if that was a measure of healing for their heart. I suspect it had to at least encourage them that somehow God was using and moving the tragic death of their son. And that's what's happening here. And for some of you who've walked that road yourself, you may see some fingerprints of God's glorious and redemptive work in the midst of some deep valleys and dark days. And I think it's in this category. There's just so much mystery surrounding some of the painful experiences in this life. But I hold on to the fact that because our God is a a great and glorious and sovereign God, there's just more going on here than I'm going to be able to see and understand in this life. And I suspect Saul had to internalize that. Could you imagine the weight he must have carried around uh, when he got around Stephen's family? And so verse 25, here's what happens. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And so Tarsus is in kind of south-central Turkey. And then you go over to, uh, you go over just east Antioch. If you just go east of Antioch and east of the border of Syria. So on your map, you'll kind of see Antioch. It's right there on the Syrian uh, border. And so here is this journey with Saul. His silence is broken by a knock at his door. Barnabas comes knocking. Remember, it's been 10 years. So he's in his early 40s, in his hometown, doing what I think the desert of Arabia was teaching him to do, which is walk with God, drill the wells deeply, learn how to listen to Jesus, study the scriptures, pray, fast, seek God, obey him, and then Barnabas knocks. And the silence is broken with Barnabas' knock. And the journey inward now, church, gives way to the journey outward. In his early 40s, so Saul's journey outward goes from his early 40s, and he's executed in 67 A.D. So he's executed in his mid-60s. So we've got about a 20-year run of Saul's outward, missionary, spiritually-like productive work. It's 20 years. And he writes 13 of the 27 New Testament books, and as we'll see, plants dozens and dozens of churches. Yes, this is Saul 1.0, who becomes Paul 2.0. And so Barnabas, here's the question. Why does Barnabas, what is triggering Barnabas to go get Saul from Tarsus? What is it? Remember the promise? Barnabas knows, everybody knows because of Saul's reputation. Everybody knows about Damascus. Everybody knows what happened on the road. Ananias has been telling that story everywhere. Ananias has been running around and said, you should have seen. It was crazy. I like put my hands on this guy and I prayed for him and he was blind. Now he could see. And then Jesus spoke and said, you're going to be a light to who? The Gentiles, the non-Jews. Everybody knows the call and commission on Saul of Tarsus' life is to be a light to the non-Jewish people. And what's just happened now because of Stephen's martyrdom? Greeks started showing up in the new members class in Antioch, and they don't know what to do. Can you see that? The guy running, the guy or the gal running the new members class at the church in Antioch, they somehow get word to Barnabas. Barnabas, we've got Greeks showing up at the membership class. 
And Barnabas was like, that's awesome. And probably the Jewish leader's like, huh, I'm not sure. You see that? The Greeks start showing up. So they say, go get Saul. Why? Because they know this. God's primary instrument to deal with this integrated, multi-ethnic, multi-nation movement called Jesus Church is Saul of Tarsus. Go get Saul. He'll know what to do. So Barnabas, can you see that scene? That had to be an amazing scene. Where Saul for a decade plus. No doubt there had to be a place where Saul's probably like, well, I guess that thing on the Damascus Road, that maybe is for some other era of my life. He probably just settled in after six, seven, eight years there in Tarsus, just making tents and doing his deal until Barnabas knocks and says, we need you in Antioch. And then for a whole year, there is Antioch. And no doubt he begins to take over the new members class. And he begins to talk to them about God's heart for all people everywhere, right? This step in redemptive history here in Acts, do you see how it's a revelation of what God's heart's always been revealed to be? Since he put humans on the planet, put them in diverse cultures and people and locations, it's been this, God's been revealing himself as a God whose heart is for all people everywhere. The tendency of humans is to make it God is for us right here. We tend to turn a bit myopic, especially the Jews, because they felt they were the chosen ones in that, and that Jesus being a Jew himself, you could see how it could become pretty insular there, that they could become pretty inward focused, that this was primarily a Jerusalem-based Jewish-centered deal. It'd be pretty easy to see the pole to go that way. And that's not just unique to them. That's part of when you look at, when you study church history, the pull in the church is often to turn frequently inward and become myopic and lose sight of what God has been trying to reveal since Genesis. From Genesis to Revelation, the consistent heart of God has been for all people everywhere. That any church that's teaching the Bible and keeping Jesus at the center of this thing is going to be a missionary church. It's going to be for all people everywhere. It's not going to be for one group of people in one location. It's going to be for everybody because that's always been God's heart. He's always been one about the nations, not about a nation. And Paul, Saul now is stepping into this space and he's helping the early church say, okay, I understand you've primarily been just this pretty homogeneous group. It's going to get diversified. It's going to grow. And across the Mediterranean world now, it's primarily non-Jews who are going to move in and join Jesus' church and become kind of the forward leaders and thinkers in the church. Can you feel the radical shift in all of that? And Saul of Tarsus is going to be at the hub of it. And that's why I think when, for us to understand when you say yes to Jesus, you're always saying yes to the nations because the scope of Jesus' ministry has always been all people everywhere. Always. And as a church, that's why we do perspectives class around here. Dozens of you just finished a 15-week run with perspectives. And it's just been all about this, right? Reminding ourselves that from Genesis to Revelation, God's vision and scope of his mission has always been the nations. That's why we do that around here. That's why we have mission organization partners around here. That's why we, that's why we have that. That's why we form relationships with missionaries in different parts of the world. That's why we have a missions coordinator on our staff and we have a missions team. That's why we gave away like $175,000 last year to missions work. All of that. That's why we're a part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. 
Or as one person often said, you actually can't separate those words. So you have to keep Christian and missionary in the alliance. Because to be a follower of Jesus is to be on mission with him. Because God is a missionary God. And he's birthed this church to be a missionary church serving his missionary purposes. I wish I could get my point across here a little bit more. And so it's important for us to understand in an increasingly time in our history as a nation where we can't lose sight of God's heart for the nations and that Saul of Tarsus is literally going to become the poster child and the forerunner for us understanding this and not losing sight of it because the church in Acts becomes from this point forward a multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Whether they liked it or not, the Holy Spirit was dragging them in. And they're like, literally, these people are starting to show, we don't know what to do, but we're going to drag. And they, they have the same redemptive story. And this is why Paul's going to have to write letters. And he's going to have to write about unity. And he's going to have to write about what it means to work together and diversity and how we're all one and yet we're unique. All, you see where all that flows out of? Because they had to understand how in the midst of all the diversity, there was unity under the headship of Jesus. So this is the story that Saul of Tarsus is drafted into. Do you see this? Like Saul's drafted into a grand, epic, eternal story that started long before he's on the scene is going to continue long after he's executed in 67. He's just in this era of history. God says, yeah, I picked you for this era of history right here. But I pick you to carry out what my heart has been revealed from Genesis and will continue in Revelation when it says there'll be people from all peoples, cultures, language, and nation gathered around the throne. So the nations has always been the agenda. And now in this era of salvation history, the church of Jesus is kind of getting a front row seat to what it means to be the tip of the spear with this mission and this ministry. All right. Chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what happens. It was about this time. So all of that is a backdrop to saying in chapter 12, about this time. About what time? About the time Greeks are being added to the church. About the time the Holy Spirit is moving in places that they couldn't imagine him moving. About the time the progress of the gospel is moving out. About the time that when Stephen's martyrdom was propelling people to scatter. About the time Saul of Tarsus comes to Antioch and begins to help lead the transition in the church. About that time, all of that, King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 4, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So you see this? This is, look, all of this is going on. So you got Stephen is executed, James is beheaded, Peter is imprisoned, and Herod is nuts. And he seems to be holding all the cards. That's what's going on. Stephen's executed. James is beheaded. Peter's in prison. And Herod is nuts and seems to be calling all the shots. What's the church doing? Glad you asked. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. The church was earnestly, underline, earnestly praying to God for him. And I put in your notes the word earnestly. You know what it means, church, to pray with that kind of earnestness? The original word there, it's a medical term that means when your muscle is stretched to its max. 
There's a groaning in your praying. It's the kind of praying that you do when you're walking through something that you can't see how you're going to get through what you're going through. You're earnestly, you're groaning. It's what the church in the Ukraine right now, can you imagine the prayer meetings in the church in the Ukraine? It's this, it's Acts 12.5. That's what they're doing. They're groaning in their praying. And for some of you, that's definitely Lily Sterling's prayers over this. That's definitely Nancy Huey's prayers this past week. And for some of you, that's right where you're at in your own set of circumstances. Where you just, you can't quite put words to and you just, you're groaning, you're calling out and the church gets together and says, well, James has been executed, Peter's arrested, Stephen's already gone. What do they do? We're going to get together and we're just going to, can you imagine that prayer meeting? Wow, that had to be a prayer meeting. And a little side note, our Sunday morning prayer gathering starting right over there. You see those chairs over there? I think that's our earnestly praying section right there. That's what we're learning as a congregation, right? 9.15 on Sunday mornings. Wouldn't that be awesome if that circle just kept growing? What, what about we had just so many blue chairs set up for that kind of a prayer? Can you imagine? And that's an open invite to anybody who wants to come. 9.15 on Sunday mornings, you come over there and you get a ground some followers of Jesus who are just simply going to get together and do this. We're going to earnestly pray. We're going to call out to God and seek His face. Because that's what followers of Jesus do. Because when you recognize the dynamics and the environment you're set in, this is what you do. And they're straining in their praying. And in the midst of that, if you read sections, I won't read all the sections there in 12, but Peter, he's like shackled up and he's behind bars until some angels come in the middle of the night, open the doors, break the shackles, and walk him out. That had to be a unique night. Just walks out. And the angels walk him past the guards and walk him out into the courtyard, and then Peter, like, comes to whatever out there, and then he realizes God's literally set him free from jail. Guess where Peter goes? He goes to Mary's house where the prayer meeting is because he knows they're gathered to praying. He goes knocking on the door of the prayer meeting there. And could you imagine they... You know, if you read the text, a bunch of people don't believe that it's him knocking at the door. They basically kind of shut the door in his face. They can't quite process that it's Peter standing there. Isn't that just like us, though? In our prayer meetings, we're calling out to God. We're earnestly, we're believing him for big things, and then God does something. We can't even put it together. We can't even process it. That Peter might be standing at the door. Wasn't that what you were praying for? He's standing right there. It's like, that's me. I'm a mixed bag of fear and faith when I pray at times, Right? Faith to believe God thing, and then just scared out of my daylights that Herod's going to come and decapitate the next member. That. Well, that's what's going on here for these guys. And then verse 21, what happens after the prayer meeting? After You can imagine, right? Herod's quite upset when he hears the next day that Peter's been released, and he's decided, you know what? Get the guards together. I want to get the story. And the guard's story is, well, we don't know. King Herod, we don't know what happened, but... Peter's shackles are there and the doors are open and he walked out. The best we could figure out, it had to be something of God. Now, if you're Herod, what do you think your response is to that? He's not feeling it. He just kills the guards, executes them. This is Herod because he's nuts. He does whatever he wants to do. Until verse 21, 
On the appointed day, Herod. Now, the appointed day, that text means there's like a festival, a celebration. Lots of people together. Caesar had issued this big festival day. He's wearing his royal robes. He's sitting on his throne. He's delivering a public address to the people. He's just holding all the cards. Herod's got all the power. He just does whatever he, he wants to do. And the people are shouting about Herod. This is the voice of a God. Notice little G Luke puts there. Not of a man. Verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Happy Sunday, everybody. (laughs) Happy Sunday. But verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. So I'll draw this to close with this. You see this? Stephen, he is executed. James is beheaded. Peter is arrested and then released. The church is earnestly praying. Herod is struck down, eaten by worms, and dies. Two reflections to draw this together from all this narrative in this part of Saul's journey. Number one, God gets the last word, but you might not get to see it in this life. You might not get to see it in this life. Stephen's family didn't get to see it. James's family James didn't get to see it. Stephen didn't. They didn't get to see God getting the last word. They were executed. Sometimes we get a front row seat to what God's doing. It's wonderful when you get like the front row seat in this life, the redemptive edge of history. You get a front. That's wonderful when you get to see God getting the last word on a front. But often that seat's reserved for the life to come. And that's for somebody today here. You know who you are and you're walking through some things. And at the core of it, you feel a deep-seated, a mystery that borderline on injustice, that borderline on you can't put it together, you can't understand why this, why now, why you, all of that. And the Lord wants you to know today, He's going to get the last word. There's a pretty good chance you're not going to get it in this life. But I promise you, because of who He is, He will get the last word, and He will set it right. And you hold on to that. I suspect for Stephen... And for James, that seed in eternity. Second principle, it's that space in between where we don't get to see it, (laughs) that our faith must live. You see that? The space in between. This is where our faith actually has to live. Saul of Tarsus, this is where your faith in Jesus, this is the soil it has to live in. What kind of soil? Where Stephen is executed, by the way, at your approval. Live with that one. And James is beheaded. And Peter is arrested. And then he's released. And Herod is nuts. And then Herod's struck down, eaten by worms, and dies. In all of that space, Saul, your faith must flourish right there. Now, church, do you see maybe why 10 years in silence? Why three years in Arabia? Because those wells had to go really, really deep. If you're going to walk that out and endure that, deep. The space where Peter busts out of prison and you hold and you hug him in a prayer meeting and you rejoice together. And then you leave that hug and you go to James' brother John and you weep. Because John didn't get to see James rescued, James is beheaded. Peter's released in that soil. Your faith has to flourish. You tracking with me? And then you go to Stephen's family. And you go to the memorial service. 
and you sit and listen to it in that space right there where you know Stephen was a genuine man who walked with. Just like Peter. Why is Peter let out of jail? Stephen's executed, James is beheaded. Right there, Saul, in that space. Your faith must flourish. The space in between what is right now and what in Jesus' name will be. Right there. And that's not just for Saul of Tarsus. That's for Eagle Family 2022. Worship team, come on back up. One final story, and then I'll close in prayer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I put a picture in your notes there. Bonhoeffer, uh, amazing life. Um, if you've never read the life of Bonhoeffer, I encourage you to do so. Metaxas's biography, it's a thick one and a dense one, but it's worth it. It's kind of the, I think, the best biography on Bonhoeffer's life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German pastor and theologian and And he wrestled with this intersection of his faith during a time when the Nazis under Hitler's leadership were wreaking havoc in the world. And he's trying to figure out, like, where's the role of engagement with his faith and, like, submission to authority, all of that stuff. And so he wrestled through that, and um, he only lived 39 years of life, so you can see where his storyline in this life ended but I put a picture there in your notes because there's a great story told of this first group of seminary students that Dietrich formed. So he decided to form a little seminary in Finkenwald, Germany. There's the first group of seminary students that enrolled in Bonhoeffer Seminary in Finkenwald, Germany. And he just pours his life into this small group of men. And he's decided, I'm going to just develop them and build into them. And some newspaper gets a hold of this story, and so they send like a reporter to Finkenwald, and they want to interview Bonhoeffer. And so Bonhoeffer, he takes the, he takes the reporter up to a little hill outside of Finkenwald because he knows at the top of the hill through a tree line, he takes the reporter up, and there's a massive Nazi training camp happening right over there. So he takes the reporter up the hill through the tree line, and he says to the reporter this, he says, You see that over there? Thousands of young men marching in alignment. Hail Hitler, they're shouting. And the reporter's just looking at him. It's just a visual. And then he pointed over there. And he pointed to Finkenwald, this little seminary, this little group of students. And here's what he said. He said, this Finkenwald, this seminary, this has to be stronger than that the Nazi training regime. Church, these are sobering times in 2022 that we're living in. When you look at the landscape of our world and our own country and the nations as a whole. For Saul, first century, he was grasping really quickly like, that disciple training, that Eremos work, like that has to be so, it's got to be a lot stronger than Herod and Caesar and all that they're doing. Listen, we've got our own Herod-like, Caesar-like reality. We've got no lack of things stacked up against the movement of Jesus in our own country and in this world. And here's the call to us as a church. This right here, this disciple-making work, this spiritual formation work, classes and small groups and teaching God's word and earnest prayer meetings, this stuff right here, dedicating kids and sending students off to camp and all the work that goes on and children and students, all of this 
hear this, it's got to be stronger than all of that. Because... It's got to be stronger. And so I don't know where you're at on the priorities you're saying yes to Jesus in, in your own disciple-making work, in your own life, and in your own family. But this is a call, church. It's got to go up. There's too much at stake. There's too much on the line. It's got to go up. It's going to require more time, more investment, more energy, more people, all of it. This, it's got to be stronger than that. Listen, my general observation is that being the general condition and trajectory of our culture today, it doesn't seem to me to just becoming increasingly Jesus-centered and God-honoring. So I think it's a lot more like what we're reading about right here. Right here. It's more of what the book of Acts was. That's more where Saul was finding himself. It's more where Bonhoeffer was. We're that little group of seminary students at Finkenwald. That's us. And we got to band together and we got to put those roots down deep enough to withstand everything that's being thrust, not only upon us, but upon the generations coming up behind us. That's our call, church. Let's pray. Father, sobering moment, sobering times. Thank you for a life that you would preserve Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle. And thank you we sit here thousands of miles from the center of Jerusalem. The gospel came to this land because you had always had a heart for the nations. And so band us together. Take our disciple-making and missions work deeper and stronger than it's ever been. To push forward in a way into a world that's desperately needing the light and the hope that you offer. Pour out your spirit. Give us the eye of faith to see when things go unsettled and unresolved. They're not always sorted out in this life. Get us the eye of faith to trust that one day you'll get the last word. And with that last word, you'll set it right. In Jesus' name.